When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Welcome to 1001 Ghost Stories and Tales of the Macabre. This is your 1001 guest host, Brian Trombley. Today's story is The Damned Thing. It was written by Civil War soldier and writer Ambrose Bierce. It first appeared in Town Topics on December 7, 1893. And now to our story, The Damned Thing by Ambrose Bierce. Part 1 one does not always eat what is on the table. By the light of a tallow candle which had been placed on one end of a rough table, a man was reading something written in a book. It was an old account book, greatly worn, and the writing was not apparently very legible, for the man sometimes held the page close to the flame of the candle to get a bit stronger light on it. The shadow of the book would then throw into obscurity a half of the room darkening a number of faces and figures, for besides the reader, eight other men were present. Seven of them sat against the rough log walls, silent, motionless, and, the room being small, not very far from the table. By extending an arm, any one of them could have touched the eighth man, who lay on the table face upward, partly covered by a sheet, his arms at his sides. He was dead." The man with the book was not reading aloud, and no one spoke. All seemed to be waiting for something to occur. The dead man only was without expectation. From the blank darkness outside came in, through the aperture that served for a window, all the ever unfamiliar noises of night in the wilderness, the long nameless note of a distant coyote, the stilly pulsing thrill of tireless insects and trees, strange cries of night birds, so different from those from the birds of the day, the drone of great blundering beetles, and all that mysterious chorus of small sounds that seem always to have been but half heard when they have suddenly ceased, as if conscious of an indiscretion. But nothing of all this was noted in that company. Its members were not overmuch addicted to idle interest in materials of no practical importance. That was obvious in every line of their rugged faces, obvious even in the dim light of a single candle. There were evidently men of the vicinity, farmers and woodsmen. The person reading was a trifle different. One would have said of him that he was of the world, worldly, albeit there was that in his attire which attested a certain fellowship with the organisms of his environment. His coat would hardly have passed muster in San Francisco. His footgear was not of urban origin, and the hat that lay by him on the floor he was the only one uncovered, was such that if one had considered it as an article mere personal adornment, he would have missed its meaning. In countenance, the man was rather prepossessing, with just a hint of sternness, though that he may have assumed or cultivated as appropriate to one in authority, for he was a coroner. It was by virtue of his office that he had possession of the book in which he was reading. It had been found among the dead man's effects, in his cabin, where the inquest was now taking place. When the coroner had finished reading, he put the book into his breast pocket. 
At that moment, the door was pushed open, and a young man entered. He clearly was not of mountain birth and breeding. He was clad as those who dwell in cities. His clothing was dusty, however, as from travel, he had, in fact, been riding hard to attend the inquest. The coroner nodded. No one else greeted him. "'We have waited for you,' said the coroner. "'It is necessary to have done with this business tonight.' The young man smiled. "'I'm sorry to have kept you,' he said. "'I went away not to evade your summons, but to post my newspaper an account of what I suppose I am called back to relate.' The coroner smiled. "'The account that you posted to your newspaper,' he said, "'differs probably from that which you will give here under oath.' That, replied another, rather hotly, and with a visible flush, is as you please. I used manifold paper and have a copy of what I sent. It was not written as news, for it is incredible, but as fiction. It may go as part of my testimony under oath. But you say it's incredible. That is nothing to you, sir, if I also swear that it is true. The coroner was silent for a time, his eyes upon the floor. The man about the sides of the cabin talked in whispers, but seldom withdrew their gaze from the face of the corpse. Presently the coroner lifted his eyes and said, "'Will you resume the inquest?' The men removed their hats. The witness was sworn. "'What is your name?' the coroner asked. "'William Harker. Age? Twenty-seven. "'You knew the deceased, Hugh Morgan?' "'Yes.' "'You were with him when he died?' "'Near him.' "'How did that happen? Your presence, I mean.' I was visiting him at his place to shoot and fish. A part of my purpose, however, was to study him and his odd, solitary way of life. He seemed a good model for a character in fiction. I sometimes write stories. I sometimes read them. Thank you. Stories in general, not yours. Some of the jurors laughed. Against a somber background, humor shows highlights. Soldiers in their intervals of battle laugh easily and a jest in the death of chamber conquers by surprise. Relate the circumstances of this man's death, said the coroner. You may use any notes or memoranda that you please. The witness understood. Pulling a manuscript from his breast pocket, he held it near the candle, and, turning the leaves until he found the passage that he wanted, began to read. Part 2. What May Happen in a Field of Wild Oats The sun had hardly risen when we left the house. We were looking for quail, each with a shotgun, but we had only one dog. Morgan said that our best ground was beyond a certain ridge that he pointed out, and we crossed it by trail through the chaparral. On the other side was comparatively level ground, thickly covered with wild oats, and as we emerged from the chaparral, Morgan was but a few yards in advance. Suddenly we heard, at a little distance to our right and partly in front, a noise as of some animal thrashing about in the bushes, which we could see were violently agitated. We've started a deer, I said. I wished we had brought a rifle. Morgan, who had stopped and was intently watching the agitated chaparral, said nothing, but had cocked both barrels of his gun and was holding it in readiness to aim. I thought him a trifle excited, which surprised me, for he had a reputation for exceptional coolness, even in moments of sudden and imminent peril. Oh, come, I said. You are not going to fill up a deer with quail shot, are you? Still, he did not reply, but, catching a sight of his face as he turned it slightly toward me, I was struck by the intensity of his look. Then I understood that we had serious business in hand, and my first conjecture was that we had jumped a grizzly. 
I advanced to Morgan's side, cocking my piece as I moved. The bushes were now quiet, and the sounds had ceased, but Morgan was as attentive to the place as before. "'What is it? What the devil is it?' I asked. "'That damn thing,' he replied, without turning his head. His voice was husky and unnatural. He trembled visibly. I was about to speak further when I observed the wild oats near the place of the disturbance moving in the most inexplicable way. I can hardly describe it. It seemed as if stirred by a streak of wind which not only bent it, but pressed it down, crushed it so that it did not rise, and this movement was slowly prolonging itself directly towards us. Nothing that I had ever seen had affected me so strangely as this unfamiliar and unaccountable phenomenon, yet I am unable to recall any sense of fear. I remember and tell it here because, singularly enough, I recollected it then, that once in looking carelessly out of an open window, I momentarily mistook a small tree close at hand for one group of larger trees at a little distance away. It looked the same size as the others, but, being more distinctly and sharply defined in mass and detail, seemed out of harmony with them. It was a mere falsification of the law of aerial perspective, but it startled, almost terrified me. We so rely upon the orderly operation of familiar natural laws that any seeming suspension of them is noted as a menace to our safety, a warning of unthinkable calamity. So now the apparently causeless movement of the herbage and the slow, undeviating approach of the line disturbances were distinctly disquieting. My companion appeared actually frightened, and I could hardly credit my senses when I saw him suddenly throw his gun to his shoulder and fire both barrels at the agitated grain. Before the smoke of the discharge had cleared away, I heard a loud savage cry, a scream like that of a wild animal, and flinging his gun upon the ground, Morgan sprang away and ran swiftly from the spot. At the same instant, I was thrown violently to the ground by the impact of something unseen in the smoke, some soft, heavy substance that seemed thrown against me with great force. Before I could get upon my feet and recover my gun, which seemed to have been struck from my hands, I heard Morgan crying out as if in mortal agony, and mingling with his cries were such hoarse, savage sounds as one hears from fighting dogs. Inexpressibly terrified, I struggled to my feet and looked in the direction of Morgan's retreat, and may heaven in mercy spare me from another sight like that. At a distance of less than thirty yards was my friend, down upon one knee, his head thrown back at a frightful angle, hatless, his long hair in disorder, and his whole body in violent movement from side to side, backward and forward. His right arm was lifted and seemed to lack the hand, at least, I could see none. The other arm was invisible, at times, my memory now reports this extraordinary scene, I could discern but a part of his body. It was as if he had been partly blotted out. I cannot otherwise express it. Then a shifting of his position would bring it all into view again. All this must have occurred within a few seconds, yet in that time Morgan assumed all the postures of a determined wrestler vanquished by superior weight and strength. I saw nothing but him and him not always distinctly. During the entire incident, his shouts and curses were heard as if through an enveloping roar of such sounds of rage and fury as I'd never heard from the throat of a man or brute. For a moment only, I stood irresolute. Then, throwing down my gun, I ran forward to my friend's assistance. 
I had a vague belief that he was suffering from a fit or some form of convulsion. Before I could reach his side, he was down and quiet. All sounds had saw again the mysterious movement of the wild oats, prolonging itself from the trampled area about the prostate man toward the edge of a wood. It was only when it had reached the wood that I was able to withdraw my eyes and look at my companion. He was dead. Part 3. A Man Though Naked May Be in Rags The coroner rose from his seat and stood beside the dead man. Lifting an edge of the sheet, he pulled it away, exposing the entire body, altogether naked and showing in the candlelight a clay-like yellow. It had, however, broad maculations of bluish-black, obviously caused by extravasated blood from contusions. The chest and sides looked as if they had been beaten with a bludgeon. There were dreadful lacerations. The skin was torn in strips and shreds. The coroner moved around to the end of the table and undid a silk handkerchief, which had been passed under the chin and knotted on the top of the head. When the handkerchief was drawn away, it exposed what had been the throat. Some of the jurors, who had risen to get a better view, repented their curiosity and turned away their faces. Witness Harker went to the open window and leaned out across the sill, faint and sick. Dropping the handkerchief upon the dead man's neck, the coroner stepped to an angle of the room and, from a pile of clothing, produced one garment after another, each of which he held up a moment for inspection. All were torn and stiff with blood. The jurors did not make a closer inspection. They seemed rather uninterested. They had, in truth, seen all this before, the only thing that was new to them being Harker's testimony. Gentlemen, the coroner said, we have no more evidence, I think. Your duty has already been explained to you. If there is nothing you wish to ask, you may go outside and consider your verdict. I should like to ask one question, Mr. Coroner, he said. What asylum did this year last witness escape from? Mr. Harker said the coroner gravely and tranquilly, from what asylum did you last escape? Harker flushed crimson again, but said nothing, and the seven jurors rose and solemnly filed out of the cabin. If you have done insulting me, sir, said Harker, as soon as he and the officer were left alone with the dead man, I suppose I am at liberty to go? Yes. Harker started to leave, but paused with his hand on the door latch. The habit of his profession was strong in him stronger than his sense of personal dignity. He turned about and said, The book you have there. I recognize it as Morgan's Diary. You seemed greatly interested in it. You read in it while I was testifying. May I see it? The public would like... The book will cut no figure in this matter, replied the official, slipping it into his coat pocket. All the entries in it were made before the writer's death. As Harker passed out of the house, the jury re-entered and stood about the table on which now the covered corpse showed under the sheet with sharp definition. The foreman seated himself near the candle, produced from his breast pocket a pencil and scrap of paper, and wrote rather laboriously the following verdict, which, with degrees of effort, all signed. We, the jury, do find that the remains come to their death at the hands of a mountain lion, but some of us thinks... All the same, they had fits. Part 4. An Explanation from the Tomb In the diary of the late Hugh Morgan are certain interesting entries having, possibly, a scientific value as suggestions. At the inquest upon his body, the book was not put in evidence, 
Possibly the coroner thought it not worthwhile to confuse the jury. The date of the first of the entries mentioned cannot be ascertained. The upper part of the leaf is torn away. The part of the entry remaining follows. Would run in a half circle, keeping his head turned always towards the center. And again, he would stand still, barking furiously. At least he ran away into the brush as fast as he could go. I thought at first that he had gone mad, but on returning to the house, found no other alteration in his manner than what was obviously due to his fear of punishment. Can a dog see with his nose? Do odors impress some cerebral center with images of the thing that emitted them? September 2nd. Looking at the stars last night as they rose above the crest of the ridge east of the house, I observed them successively disappear from left to right. Each was eclipsed but an instant, and only a few at the same time, but along the entire length of the ridge, all that were within a degree or two of the crest were blotted out. It was as if something had passed along between me and them, but I could not see it, and the stars were not thick enough to define its outline. Ugh, I don't like this. Several weeks' entries are missing, three leaves being torn from the book. September 27. It has been about here again. I find evidences of its presence every day. I watched again all last night in the same cover, gun in hand, double-charged with buckshot. In the morning, the fresh footprints were there, as before. Yet, I would have sworn that I did not sleep. Indeed, I hardly sleep at all. It is terrible, unsupportable. If these amazing experiences are real, I shall go mad. If they are fanciful, I am mad already. October 3rd. I shall not go. It shall not drive me away. No, this is my house, my land. God hates a coward. October 5th. I can stand it no longer. I have invited Harker to pass a few weeks with me. He has a level head. I can judge from his manner if he thinks me mad. October 7. I have the solution of the mystery. It came to me last night, suddenly as by revelation. How simple, how terribly simple. There are sounds that we cannot hear. At either end of the scale are notes that stir no chord of that imperfect instrument, the human ear. They are too high or too grave. I have observed a flock of blackbirds occupying an entire treetop, the tops of several trees, and along in full song. Suddenly, in a moment, at absolutely the same instant, all spring into the air and fly away. How? They could not see one another. Whole treetops intervened. At one point, could a leader have been visible to all? There must have been a signal of warning or command, high and shrill above the din, but by me, unheard. I have observed, too, the same simultaneous flight when all were silent, among not only blackbirds, but other birds, quail, for example, widely separated by bushes, even on opposite sides of a hill. It is known to seamen that a school of whales basking or sporting on the surface of the ocean, miles apart, with the convexity of the earth between, will sometimes dive at the same instant, all gone out of sight in a moment. The signal has been sounded, too grave for the ear of the sailor at the masthead and his comrades on the deck, who nevertheless feel its vibrations in the ship as the stones of the cathedral are stirred by the base of the organ. As with sounds, so with colors. At each end of the solar spectrum, the chemist can detect the presence of what are known as actinic rays, they represent colors, integral colors in the composition of light, which are unseeable to discern. 
The human eye is an imperfect instrument. Its range is but a few octaves of the real chromatic scale. I am not mad. There are colors that we cannot see. And God help me, the damned thing is of such color. Thank you for joining us here at 1001 Ghost Stories and Tales of the Macabre. This is Brian Trombley, your 1001 guest host. We appreciate reviews as well as Spotify comments. Join us next week on Sunday at noon Eastern Time for more brand new ghost stories. We'll return with our second story, The Rival Ghosts, by Brander Matthews, right after these sponsor messages. Mother's Day is almost here, and you can get her the most beautiful time-tested gift around. A watch she can wear every day for movement. Whether mom's into classic dress watches, rare and refined ceramics, or tried-and-true bestsellers, Movement has something she'll love. And right now, you can save big on the best Mother's Day gift ever with up to 50% off site-wide during Movement's Mother's Day sale at MVMT.com. Again, that's up to 50% off at MVMT.com. You know how to book flights and hotels. All you're missing is a tool to plan the travel experiences you'll have once you arrive. That's why you need Viator. Book guided tours, activities, excursions, and more in one place to make your trip truly unforgettable. Viator has over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from. Everything from simple tours to extreme adventures and all the niche, interesting stuff in between. So you can plan something that everyone you're traveling with will enjoy. Real traveler reviews give the inside scoop from people who've already been on the experiences you're considering. So you can plan with confidence. Free cancellation helps you plan for the unexpected. And 24-7 customer support means you can travel worry-free. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator. And now, The Rival Ghosts, narrated by Brian Trombley. Welcome to 1001 Ghost Stories and Tales of the Macabre. This is your 1001 guest host, Brian Trombley. Today's story is The Rival Ghosts by Brander Matthews. A group of passengers on an ocean liner debate which has better spooks, the continent or the states, and they gather around Uncle Larry to enjoy a yarn that speaks to both sides. And now, our story, The Rival Ghosts by Brander Matthews. The good ship sped on her way across the calm Atlantic. It was an outward passage, according to the little charts, which the company had charily distributed, but most of the passengers were homeward bound after a summer of rest and recreation, and they were counting the days before they might hope to see Fire Island light. On the lee side of the boat, comfortably sheltered from the wind and just by the door of the captain's room, which was theirs during the day, sat a little group of returning Americans. The Duchess, she was down on the purser's list as Mrs. Martin, but her friends and familiars called her the Duchess of Washington Square. And baby Van Resselaar, she was quite old enough to vote, and her sex had been entitled to that duty, but as the younger of two sisters, she was still the baby of the family. The Duchess and baby Van Resselaar were discussing the pleasant English voice and the not-pleasant English accent of a manly young lordling who was going to America for sport. Uncle Larry and dear Jones were enticing each other into a bet on the ship's run of the morrow. 
I'll give you two to one she doesn't make 420, said Dear Jones. I'll take it, answered Uncle Larry. We made 427 the fifth day last year. It was Uncle Larry's 17th visit to Europe, and this was, therefore, his 34th voyage. And when did you get in, asked Bobby Van Rustlar. I don't care a bit about the run, so as long as we get in soon. We crossed the bar Sunday night just seven days after we left Queenstown, and we dropped anchor off quarantine at three o'clock on Monday morning. I hope we shan't do that this time. I can't seem to sleep any when the boat stops. I can't, but I didn't, continued Uncle Larry, because my stateroom was the most forward in the boat, and the donkey engine that let down the anchor was right over my head. So, you got up and saw the sun rise over the bay, said Dear Jones, with the electric lights of the city twinkling in the distance, and that first faint flush of the dawn in the east just over Fort Lafayette, and the rosy tinge which spread softly upward, and... Did you both come back together, asked the Duchess. Because he has crossed thirty-four times, you must suppose that he has a monopoly in sunrises, retorted Dear Jones. No, this was my own sunrise, and a mighty pretty one it was, too. I'm not matching sunrises with you, remarked Uncle Larry calmly, but I'm willing to back a merry jest called forth by the sunrise against my two merry jests called forth by yours. I confess reluctantly that my sunrise evoked no merry jest at all. Dear Jones was an honest man and would scorn to invent a merry jest on the spur of the moment. That's where my sunrise has the call, said Uncle Larry complacently. What was the merry jest? Was Bobby Van Ressler's inquiry the natural result of a feminine curiosity thus artistically excited? Well, here it is. I was standing aft near a patriotic American and a wandering Irishman, and the patriotic American rashly declared that you couldn't see a sunrise like that anywhere in Europe. And this gave the Irishman his chance, and he said, Sure, you don't have them here till we're through with them over there. It is true, said Dear Jones, thoughtfully, that they do have some things over there better than we do. For instance, umbrellas. And gowns, added the Duchess. And antiques, this was Uncle Larry's contribution. And we do have some things so much better in America, protested Baby Van Resselaar, as yet uncorrupted by any worship of the effete monarchies of despotic Europe. We make lots of things a great deal nicer than you get them in Europe, especially ice cream. And pretty girls, added Dear Jones, but he did not look at her. And spooks, remarked Uncle Larry casually. Spooks, queried the Duchess. Spooks. I maintain the word. Ghosts, if you like that better, or specters, we turn out the best quality of spook. You forget the lovely ghost stories about the Rhine and the Black Forest, interrupted Miss Van Resselaar, with feminine inconsistency. I remember the Rhine and the Black Forest and all the other haunts of elves and fairies and hobgoblins, but for good honest spooks there's no place like home. And what differentiates our spook, Spiritus Americanus, from the ordinary ghost of literature is that it responds to the American sense of humor. Take Irving's stories, for example. The Headless Horseman, that's a comic ghost story. And Rip Van Winkle, consider what humor and what good humor there is in telling of his meeting with the goblin crew of Hendrick Hudson's men. A still better example of this American way of dealing with legend and mystery is the marvelous tale of the rival ghosts. The rival ghosts queried the Duchess and Baby Van Ressler together. Who are they? Didn't I ever tell you about them, answered Uncle Larry, a gleam of approaching joy flashing in his eye. Since he is bound to tell us sooner or later, we'd better be resigned and hear it now, said Dear Jones. 
If you are not more eager, I won't tell at all. Oh, do, Uncle Larry. You know I just dote on ghost stories, pleaded baby Van Ressler. Once upon a time, began Uncle Larry. In fact, a very few years ago, there lived in the thriving town of New York a young American called Duncan, Eliphalet Duncan. Like his name, he was half Yankee and half Scotch, and, naturally, he was a lawyer and had come to New York to make his way. His father was a Scotchman who had come over and settled in Boston and married a Salem girl. When Eliphalet Duncan was about 20, he lost both his parents. His father left him with enough money to give him a start and a strong feeling of pride in his Scotch birth. You see, there was a title in the family of Scotland, and although Eliphalet's father was the younger son of a younger son, yet he always remembered and always bade his only son to remember that his ancestry was noble. His mother left him for a full share of Yankee grit and a little house in Salem, which has belonged to her family for more than 200 years. She was a Hitchcock, and the Hitchcocks had been settled in Salem since the year one. It was a great-great-grandfather of Mr. Eliphalet Hitchcock, who was foremost in the time of the Salem witchcraft craze. And this little old house, which she left to my friend, Eliphalet Duncan, was haunted. By the ghost of one of the witches, of course, interrupted Dear Jones. Now, how could it be the ghost of a witch, since the witches were all burned at the stake? You've never heard of anybody who was burned having a ghost, did you? That's an argument in favor of cremation at any rate, replied Jones, evading the direct question. It is, and if you don't like ghosts, I do, said Baby Van Ressler. And so do I, added Uncle Larry. I love a ghost as dearly as an Englishman loves a lord. Go on with your story, said the Duchess majestically, overruling all extraneous discussion. This little old house at Salem was haunted, resumed Uncle Larry, and by a very distinguished ghost, or at least by a ghost with very remarkable attributes. What was he like, asked Baby Van Ressler, with a premonitory shiver of anticipatory delight. It had a lot of peculiarities. In the first place, it never appeared to the master of the house. Mostly, it confined its visitations to unwelcome guests. In the course of the last 100 years, it had frightened away four successive mother-in-laws while never intruding on the head of the household. And I guess that ghost had been one of the boys when he was alive and in the flesh. This was Dear Jones's contribution to the telling of the tale. In the second place, continued Uncle Larry, it never frightened anybody the first time it appeared. Only on the second visit were the ghost seers scared. Only on the second visit were the ghost seers scared. But then they were scared enough for twice, and they rarely mustered up the courage enough to risk a third interview. One of the most curious characters of this well-meaning spook was that it had no face, or at least that nobody ever saw a face. Perhaps he kept his countenance veiled, queried the Duchess, who was beginning to remember that she never did like ghost stories. That was what I was never able to find out. I have asked several people who saw the ghost, and none of them could tell me anything about its face. And yet, while in its presence, they never noticed its features and never remarked on their absence or concealment. It was only afterward when they tried to recall calmly all the circumstances of meeting with the mysterious stranger that they became aware that they had not seen its face. And... They could not say whether the features were covered, or whether they were wanting, or what the trouble was. They knew only that the face was never seen, 
and, no matter how often they might see it, they never fathomed this mystery. To this day, nobody knows whether the ghost which used to haunt the little house in Salem had a face, or what manner of a face it had. How awfully weird, said Baby Van Ressler, and why did the ghost go away? I haven't said it went away, answered Uncle Larry with much dignity. But you said it used to haunt the little old house at Salem, so I suppose it had moved, didn't it? You shall be told in due time. Eliphalet Duncan used to spend most of his summer vacations at Salem, and the ghost never bothered him at all, for he was the master of the house, much to his disgust too, because he wanted to see for himself the mysterious tenant at will of his property. But he never saw it, never. He arranged with friends to call him whenever it might appear, and he slept in the next room with the door open, and yet, when their frightened cries waked him, the ghost was gone, and his only reward was to hear reproachful sighs as soon as he went back to bed. You see, the ghost thought it was not fair of Eliphalet to seek an introduction, which was plainly unwelcome. Dear Jones interrupted the storyteller by getting up and tucking a heavy rug snugly around a baby Van Russelaar's feet, for the sky was now overcast and gray, and the air was damp and penetrating. One fine spring morning, pursued Uncle Larry, Eliphalet Duncan received great news. I told you that there was a title in the family in Scotland, and that Eliphalet's father was the younger son of a younger son. Well, it happened that all Eliphalet's father's brothers and uncles had died off, without male issue, except the eldest son of the eldest, and he, of course, bore the title, and was Baron Duncan of Duncan. Now, the great news that Eliphalet Duncan received in New York one fine spring morning was that Baron Duncan and his only son had been yachting in the Hebrides, and they had been caught in a black squall, and they were both dead. So, my friend Eliphalet Duncan inherited the title and the estates. How romantic, said the Duchess. She was a baron. Well, answered Uncle Larry, he was a baron if he chose, but he didn't choose. More fool he, said dear Jones sententiously. Well, answered Uncle Larry, I'm not so sure of that. You see, Eliphalet Duncan was half Scotch and half Yankee, and he had two eyes to the main chance. He held his tongue about his windfall of luck until he found out whether the Scotch estates were enough to keep the Scotch title. He soon discovered that they were not, and the late Lord Duncan, having married money, kept up such state as he could out of the revenues of the dowry of Lady Duncan. And Eliphalet? He decided that he would rather be a well-fed lawyer in New York living comfortably on his practice than a starving lord in Scotland living scantily on his title. But he kept his title, asked the Duchess. Well, answered Uncle Larry, he kept it quiet. I knew it, and a friend or two more, but Eliphalet was a sight too smart to put Baron Duncan of Duncan, attorney and counselor at law, on his shingle. What has all this got to do with your ghost, asked Dear Jones pertinently. Nothing with that ghost, but a good deal with another ghost. Eliphalet was very learned in spirit lore, perhaps because he owned the haunted house at Salem, perhaps because he was a Scotchman by descent. At all events, he had made a special study of the wraiths and white ladies and banshees and bogies of all kinds, whose sayings and doings and warnings are recorded in the annals of the Scottish nobility. In fact, he was acquainted with the habits of every reputable spook in the Scottish peerage. And, 
He knew that there was a Duncan ghost attached to the person of the holder of the title of Baron Duncan of Duncan. So besides being the owner of a haunted house in Salem, he was also a haunted man in Scotland, asked Baby Van Ressler. Just so. But the Scotch ghost was not unpleasant, like the Salem ghost, although it had one peculiarity in common with its transatlantic fellow spook. It never appeared to the holder of the title, just as the other never was visible to the owner of the house. In fact, the Duncan ghost was never seen at all. It was a guardian angel only. Its sole duty was to be in personal attendance on Baron Duncan of Duncan and to warn him of impending evil. The traditions of the house told that the barons of Duncan had again and again felt a premonition of ill fortune. Some of them had yielded and withdrawn from the venture they had undertaken, and it had failed dismally. Some had been obstinate and had hardened their hearts, and had gone on reckless of defeat and to death. In no case had a Lord Duncan been exposed to peril without fair warning. Then how came it that the father and son were lost in the yacht off the Hebrides, asked dear Jones. Because they were too enlightened to yield to superstition. There is extant now a letter of Lord Duncan written to his wife a few minutes before he and his son set sail, in which he tells her how hard he has to struggle with his most overmastering desire to give up the trip. Had he obeyed the friendly warning of the family ghost, the latter would have been spared a journey across the Atlantic. We'll return to our story right after these sponsor messages. And now, back to our story. Did the ghost leave Scotland for America as soon as the old baron died, asked Baby Van Ressler with much interest. How did he come over, queried Dear Jones, in the steerage or as a cabin passenger? I don't know, answered Uncle Larry calmly. And Ella Follette? He didn't know. For as he was in no danger and stood in no need of warning, he couldn't tell whether the ghost was on duty or not. Of course, he was on the watch for it all the time, but he never got any proof of its presence until he went down to the little house of Salem, just before the 4th of July. He took a friend down with him, a young fellow who had been in the regular army since the day Fort Sumter was fired on, and who thought that after four years of the little unpleasantness down south, including six months in Libby, and after ten years of fighting the bad Indians of the plains, he wasn't likely to be much frightened by a ghost. Well, Ella Follette and the officer sat out on the porch all evening smoking and talking over points in military law a little after twelve o'clock, just as they began to think it was about time to turn in, they heard the most ghastly noise in the house. It wasn't a shriek, or a howl, or a yell, or anything they could put a name to. It was an undeterminate, inexplicable shiver and shudder of a sound which went wailing out of the window. The officer had been at Cold Harbor, but he felt himself getting colder this time. Ella Follette knew it was the ghost who haunted the house. As this weird sound died away, it was followed by another sharp, short, blood-curdling in its intensity. Something in this cry seemed familiar to Eliphalet, and he sure felt that it proceeded from the family ghost, the warning wraith of the Duncans. Do I understand you to intimate that both guests were together, inquired the Duchess anxiously? Both of them were, answered Uncle Larry. You see, one of them belonged to the house and had to be there all the time, 
and the other was attached to the person of Baron Duncan and had to follow him there. Wherever he was there was the ghost also. But Eliphalet, he had scarcely time to think this out when he heard both sounds again, not one after the other, but both together. And something told him, some sort of an instinct he had, that these two ghosts didn't agree, didn't get on together, didn't exactly hit it off. In fact, they were quarreling. Quarreling ghosts? Well, I never, was Baby Van Ressler's remark. It is a blessed thing to see ghosts dwell together in unity, said dear Jones. And the Duchess added it would certainly be setting a better example. You know, resumed Uncle Larry, that two waves of light or of sound may interfere and produce darkness or silence. So it was with these rival spooks. They interfered, but they did not produce silence or darkness. On the contrary, as soon as Eliphalet and the officer went into the house, there began at once a series of spiritualistic manifestations, a regular dark seance. A tambourine was played upon, a bell was rung, and a flaming banjo went singing around the room. Where did they get the banjo? asked Dear Jones skeptically. I don't know. Materialized it, maybe? Just as they did the tambourine? You don't suppose a quiet New York lawyer kept a stock of musical instruments large enough to fit out a strolling minstrel troupe just on the chance of a pair of ghosts coming to give him a surprise party, do you? Every spook has its own instrument of torture. Angels play on harps, I'm informed, and spirits delight in banjos and tambourines. These spooks of Eliphalet Duncan's were ghosts with all the modern improvements, and I guess they were capable of providing their own musical weapons. At all events, they had them there in the little house at Salem the night Eliphalet and his friend came down, and they played on them, and they rang the bell, and they rapped here, there, and everywhere, and they kept it up all night. All night? asked the awe-stricken Duchess. All night long, said Uncle Larry solemnly, and the next night, too. Eliphalet did not get a wink of sleep, neither did his friend. On the second night, the house ghost was seen by the officer. On the third night, it showed itself again, and the next morning, the officer packed his grip sack and took the first train to Boston. He was a New Yorker, but he said he'd sooner go to Boston than see the ghost again. Eliphalet, he wasn't scared at all, partly because he never saw either the domiciliary or the titular spook, and partly because he felt himself on friendly terms with the spirit world and didn't scare easily. But after losing three nights' sleep and the society of his friend, he began to be a little impatient and to think that the thing had gone far enough. You see, while in a way he was fond of ghosts, he liked them best one at a time. Two ghosts were one too many, and he wasn't bent on making a collection of spooks. He and one ghost were company, but he and two ghosts were a crowd. What did he do? asked Baby Van Ressler. Well, he couldn't do anything. He waited a while hoping they would get tired, but he got tired out first. You see, it comes natural to a spook to sleep in the daytime, but a man wants to sleep nights, and they wouldn't let him sleep nights. They kept on wrangling and quarreling incessantly. They manifested and they dark seanced as regularly as the old clock on the stairs struck twelve. They rapped and they rang bells and they banged the tambourine and they flew the flaming banjo about the house, and worse than all, they swore. I did not know that spirits were addicted to bad language, said the Duchess. How did he know they were swearing? Could he hear them? asked dear Jones. 
That was just it, responded Uncle Larry. He could not hear them, at least not distinctly. There were inarticulate murmurs and stifling rumblings, but the impression produced on him was that they were swearing. If they had sworn right out, he would not have minded so much because he would have known the worst. But the feeling that the air was full of suppressed profanity was very wearing, and, after standing it for a week, he gave up in disgust and went to the White Mountains. Leaving them to fight it out, I suppose, interjected Baby Van Rensselaer. Not at all, explained Uncle Larry. They could not quarrel unless he was present. You see, he could not leave the titular ghost behind him, and the domiciliary ghost could not leave the house. When he went away, he took the family ghost with him, leaving the house ghost behind. Now spooks can't quarrel when they are a hundred miles apart any more than men can. And what happened afterward, asked Baby Van Rensselaer, with a pretty impatience. A most marvelous thing happened. Eliphalet Duncan went to the White Mountains and, in the car of the railroad that runs to the top of Mount Washington, he met a classmate, whom he had not seen for years. And this classmate introduced Duncan to his sister, and this sister was a remarkably pretty girl, and Duncan fell in love with her at first sight. And by the time he got to the top of Mount Washington, he was so deep in love that he began to consider his own unworthiness, and to wonder whether she might ever be introduced to care for him a little, ever so little. I don't think that is a marvelous thing, said Dear Jones, glancing at Baby Van Rensselaer. Who was she? asked the Duchess who once lived in Philadelphia. She was Miss Kitty Sutton of San Francisco, and she was a daughter of old Judge Sutton of the firm Pixley and Sutton. A very respectable family, assented the Duchess. I hope she wasn't a daughter of that loud and vulgar old Mrs. Sutton, whom I met in Saratoga one summer, four or five years ago, said Dear Jones. Probably she was. She was a horrid old woman. The boys used to call her Mother Gorgon. The pretty Kitty Sutton with whom Eliphalet Duncan had fallen in love was the daughter of Mother Gorgon. But he never saw the mother who was in Frisco or Los Angeles or Santa Fe or somewhere out west. And he saw a great deal of the daughter who was up in the White Mountains. She was traveling with her brother and his wife. And as they journeyed from hotel to hotel, Duncan went with them and filled out the quartet. Before the end of the summer, he began to think about proposing. Of course, he had lots of chances, going on excursions as they were every day. He made up his mind to seize the first opportunity, and that very evening he took her out for a moonlight row on Lake Winnipesaukee. And as he handed her into the boat, he resolved to do it, and he had a glimmer of suspicion that she knew he was going to do it too. Girls, said Dear Jones, Never go out in a rowboat at night with a young man unless you mean to accept him. Sometimes it's best to refuse him and get it over once and for all, said Baby Van Rensselaer. As Eliphalet took the oars, he suddenly felt a chill. He tried to shake it off, but in vain. He began to have a growing consciousness of impending evil. Before he had taken ten strokes, he was a swift oarsman. He was aware of a mysterious presence between him and Miss Sutton. Was it the guardian angel ghost warning him off the match? interrupted Dear Jones. That's just what it was, said Uncle Larry, and he yielded to it and kept his peace and rowed Miss Sutton back to the hotel with his proposal unspoken. More fool he, said Jones. 
it will take more than one ghost to keep me from proposing when my mind is made up. And he looked at Baby Van Rensselaer. The next morning, continued Uncle Larry, Eliphalet overslept himself, and when he went down to a late breakfast, he found that the Suttons had gone to New York by the morning train. He wanted to follow them at once, and again he felt the mysterious presence overpowering his will. He struggled two days, and at last he roused himself to do what he wanted in spite of the spook. When he arrived in New York, it was late in the evening. He dressed himself hastily and went to the hotel where the Suttons put up in the hope of seeing at least her brother. The guardian angel fought every inch of the walk with him until he began to wonder whether, if Miss Sutton were to take him, the spook would forbid the bands. At the hotel he saw no one that night and went home determined to call as early as he could next afternoon and make an end of it. When he left his office about two o'clock the next day to learn his fate, he had not walked five blocks before he discovered that the wraith of the Duncans had withdrawn his opposition to the suit. There was no feeling of impending evil, no resistance, no struggle, no consciousness of an opposing presence. Eliphalet was greatly encouraged. He walked briskly to the hotel, and he found Miss Sutton alone. He asked her the question, and he got his answer. She accepted him, of course, said Baby Van Rensselaer. Of course, said Uncle Larry. And while they were in the first flush of joy, swapping confidences and confessions, her brother came into the parlor with an expression of pain on his face and a telegram in his hand. The former was caused by the latter, which was from Frisco, and which announced the sudden death of Mrs. Sutton, their mother. And that was why the ghost no longer opposed the match, questioned Dear Jones. Exactly. You see, the family ghost knew that Mother Gorgon was an awful obstacle to Duncan's happiness, so it warned him. But the moment the obstacle was removed, it gave its consent at once. The fog was lowering its thick, damp curtain, and it was beginning to be difficult to see from one end of the boat to the other. Dear Jones tightened the rug which enwrapped baby Van Rensselaer, and then withdrew again into his own substantial coverings. Uncle Larry paused in his story long enough to light another of the tiny cigars he always smoked. I infer that Lord Duncan, the Duchess, was scrupulous in the bestowal of titles, saw no more of the ghosts after he was married. He never saw them at all at any time, either before or since, but they came very near breaking off the match and thus breaking the two young hearts. You don't mean to say that they knew any just cause or impediment why they should not forever hold their peace, asked Dear Jones. How could a ghost or even two ghosts keep a girl from marrying the man she loved? This was Baby Van Rensselaer's question. It seems curious, doesn't it? And Uncle Larry tried to warm himself by two or three sharp pulls at his fiery little cigar. And the circumstances are quite as curious as the fact itself. You see, Miss Sutton wouldn't be married for a year after her mother's death, so she and Duncan had lots of time to tell each other all they knew. Eliphalet, he got to know a good deal about the girls she went to school with, and Kitty, she learned all about his family. He didn't tell her about the title for a long time as he wasn't one to brag, but he described to her the little house at Salem, and one evening toward the end of the summer, the wedding day having been appointed for early in September, she told him that she didn't want to bridal to her at all. 
She just wanted to go down to the little old house at Salem to spend her honeymoon in peace and quiet, with nobody to do and nobody to bother them. Well, Eliphalet jumped at the suggestion. It suited him down to the ground. All of a sudden he remembered the spooks, and it knocked him all of a heap. He had told her about the Duncan Banshee, and the idea of having an ancestral ghost in personal attendance on her husband tickled her immensely. But he never said anything about the ghost which haunted a little old house in Salem. He knew she would be frightened out of her wits if the house ghost revealed itself to her, and he saw at once that it would be impossible to go to Salem on their wedding trip. So he told her all about it, and how whenever he went to Salem the two ghosts interfered and gave dark seances and manifested and materialized and made the place absolutely impossible. Kitty, she listened in silence, and Eliphalet, he thought she had changed her mind, but she hadn't done anything of the kind. Just like a man to think she was going to, remarked baby Van Rensselaer. She just told him she could not bear ghosts herself, but she could not marry a man who was afraid of them. Just like a girl to be so inconsistent, remarked dear Jones. Uncle Larry's tiny cigar had long been extinct. He lighted a new one and continued. Eliphalet protested in vain. Kitty said her mind was made up. She was determined to pass her honeymoon in the little old house at Salem, and she was equally determined not to go there as long as there were any ghosts there. Until he could assure her that the spectral tenants had received notice to quit, and that there was no danger of manifestations and materializing, she refused to be married at all. She did not intend to have her honeymoon interrupted by two wrangling ghosts, and the wedding could be postponed until he had made ready the house for her. She was an unreasonable young woman, said the Duchess. Well, that's what Ella Follette thought, much as he was in love with her, and he believed he could talk her out of her determination, but he couldn't. She was set, and when a girl is set, there's nothing to do but yield to the inevitable, and that's just what Ella Follette did. He saw that he would either have to give her up or to get the ghosts out, and as he loved her and did not care for the ghosts, he resolved to tackle the ghosts. He had a clear grit, Eliphalet had. He was half Scotch and half Yankee, and neither breed turns tail in a hurry. So he made his plans and he went down to Salem, and as he said goodbye to Kitty, he had an impression that she was sorry she had made him go. But she kept up bravely and put a bold face on it, and saw him off, and went home and cried for an hour, and was perfectly miserable until he came back the next day. Did he succeed in driving the ghosts away, asked baby Van Rensselaer, with a great interest. That's just what I'm coming to, said Uncle Larry, pausing at the critical moment in the manner of the trained storyteller. You see, Eliphalet had got a rather tough job, and... He would gladly have an extension of time on the contract, but he had to choose between the girl and the ghosts, and he wanted the girl. He tried to invent or remember some short and easy way with ghosts, but he couldn't. He wished that somebody had invented a specific for spooks, something that would make the ghosts come out of the house and die in the yard. He wondered if he could not tempt the ghosts to run in debt so that he might get the sheriff to help him. He wondered also whether the ghost could not be overcome with strong drink. A dissipated spook, a spook with delirium tremens, might be committed to the inebriate asylum, but 
None of these things seem feasible. What did he do? interrupted dear Jones. The learned counsel will please speak to the point. You will regret this unseemly haste, said Uncle Larry gravely, when you know what really happened. What was it, Uncle Larry? asked Baby Van Rensselaer. I'm all impatience. And Uncle Larry proceeded. Eliphalet went down to the little old house at Salem, and, as soon as the clock struck twelve, the viral ghost began wrangling as before. Raps here, there, and everywhere. Ringing bells, banging tambourines, strumming banjos sailing about the room, and all the other manifestations and materializations followed one another, just as they had the summer before. The only difference Eliphalet could detect was a stronger flavor in the spectral profanity. And this, of course, was only a vague impression, for he did not actually hear a single word. He waited a while in patience, listening and watching. And, of course, he never saw either of the ghosts, because neither of them could appear to him. At least he got his dander up, and he thought it was about time to interfere. So, he rapped on the table and asked for silence. As soon as he felt that the spooks were listening to him, he explained the situation to them. He told them he was in love and that he could not marry unless they vacated the house. He appealed to them as old friends, and he laid claim to their gratitude. The titular ghost had been sheltered by the Duncan family for hundreds of years, and the domiciliary ghost had a free lodging in the little old house at Salem for nearly two centuries. He implored them to settle their differences and to get him out of his difficulty at once. He suggested they better fight it out then and there and see who was the master. He had brought down with him all needful weapons, and he pulled out his valise and spread on the table a pair of navy revolvers, a pair of shotguns, a pair of dueling swords, and a couple of bowie knives. He offered to serve as second for both parties and to give the word when to begin. He also took out of his valise a pack of cards and a bottle of poison, telling them that if they wished to avoid carnage, they might cut the cards to see which one should take the poison. Then he waited anxiously for their reply. For a little space there was silence. Then he became conscious of a tremulous shivering in one corner of the room, and he remembered that he had heard from that direction what sounded like a frightened sigh when he made the first suggestion of the duel. Something told him that this was the domiciliary ghost, and that it was badly scared. Then he was impressed by a certain movement in the opposite corner of the room, as though the titular ghost were drawing himself up with offended dignity. Eliphalet couldn't exactly see these things, because he never saw the ghosts, but he felt them. After a silence of nearly a minute, a voice came from the corner where the family ghost stood, a voice strong and full, but trembling slightly with suppressed passion. And this voice told Eliphalet that it was plain enough that he had not been long the head of the Duncans, and that he had never properly considered the characteristics of his race if now he supposed that one of his blood could draw his sword against a woman. And all he wanted was that the Duncan ghost should fight the other ghost. And then the voice told Eliphalet that the other ghost was a woman. What? said Dear Jones, sitting up suddenly. You don't mean to tell me that the ghost which haunted the house was a woman. Those were the very words Eliphalet Duncan used, said Uncle Larry, but he did not need to wait for the answer. All at once he recalled the traditions about the domiciliary ghost, 
and he knew what the titular ghost said was the fact. He had never thought of the sex of a spook, but there was no doubt whatever that the house ghost was a woman. No sooner was this firmly fixed in Eliphalet's mind that he saw his way out of the difficulty. The ghost must be horrified, for then there would be no more interference, no more quarreling, no more manifestations and materializations, no more dark seances with their raps and bells and tambourines and banjos. At first the ghost would not hear of it. The voice in the corner declared that the Duncan Wraith had never thought of matrimony. But Eliphalet argued with them, and pleaded and persuaded and coaxed and dwelt on the advantages of matrimony. He had to confess, of course, that he did not know how to get a clergyman to marry them, but the voice from the corner gravely told him that there need be no difficulty in regard to that, as there was no lack of spiritual chaplains. Then, for the first time, the house ghost spoke, in a low, clear, gentle voice, and with a quaint, old-fashioned New England accent, which contrasted sharply with the broad Scotch speech of the family ghost. She said that Eliphalet Duncan seemed to have forgotten that she was married. But this did not upset Eliphalet at all. He remembered the whole case clearly, and he told her she was not a married ghost, but a widow, since her husband had been hung for murdering her. Then the Duncan ghost drew attention to the great disparity of their ages, saying that he was nearly 450 years old while she was barely 200. But Eliphalet had not talked to juries for nothing. He was just buckled to and coaxed those ghosts into matrimony. Afterward, he came to the conclusion that they were willing to be coaxed, but at the time he thought he had a pretty hard work to convince them of the advantages of the plan. Did he succeed, asked Baby Van Rensselaer, with a lady's interest in matrimony. He did, said Uncle Larry. He talked the wraith of the Duncans and the specter of the little old house at Salem into a matrimonial engagement. And, from the time they were engaged, he had no more trouble with them. They were rival ghosts no longer. They were married by their spiritual chaplain the very same day that Ephelette Duncan met Kitty Sutton in front of the railing of Grace Church. The ghostly bride and bridegroom went away at once on their bridal tour, and Lord and Lady Duncan went down to the little old house at Salem to pass their honeymoon. Uncle Larry stopped. His tiny cigar was out again. The tale of the rival ghosts was told. A solemn silence fell on the little party on the deck of the ocean steamer, broken harshly by the hoarse roar of the foghorn. Thanks for joining us here at 1001 Ghost Stories and Tales of the Macabre. This is Brian Tromblay, your 1001 guest host, and we appreciate reviews as well as Spotify comments. Join us next week on Sunday at noon Eastern Time for more brand new ghost stories.